Hello and welcome to another episode of Brothers Creed Podcast. We're talking about motivation, experiences, and exploring the world around us. We're the Thomas Brothers. I'm Ethan. And I'm Jared. And today we're talking about infamous hosted situations. Uh, Some you may have heard of and some you haven't heard of. Uh, These hosted situations and negotiations are a fascinating thing. And so we kind of dive into some of these ones and uh, from history and, and learn what we can learn from them and also uh, maybe some, some good things that came out of them and some bad things that came out of them. So it's going to be an interesting episode. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and jump in. All right, let's do it. Spartans, what is your profession? Any man who must say I am the king is no true king. What I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills that make me a nightmare. If I can change and you can change, Everybody can change! Let us all unite! Let us fight for a new world! A decent world! Okay, so one of the interesting things I was looking at is just like, hostage situations happen across the board. But when you talk about globally, there's some interesting patterns that that emerge. Uh, So... One thing that I looked at is the top countries, the top hostage-taking countries. Uh, first, we've got China, Cuba, Iran, North Korea, Venezuela. Those are the most countries with the highest hostages that they take. Uh, and when you talk about nationalities, uh, so this I found this one chart. It says nationalities of murdered Western hostages. 45% of them are U.S. citizens. Fifteen percent are United Kingdom citizens, and forty percent are other nationalities. So, mm. if you're a U.S. citizen, almost half of them, almost half of them are from the U.S. That's uh, because Americans are rich. You didn't know that? Yeah, and also the U.S. Well, historically, well, in years past, I don't know about years recent, uh, based off of one of the things I will tell you about, uh, you, they did not negotiate with terrorists. And so oftentimes that was a deterrent uh, from taking American hostages. But as I will talk about later, uh, in recent years, recent meaning uh, since the 2000s, uh, there has been (laughs) government negotiation with terrorists and payments to terrorists. So talk about that. Another thing that was interesting is that the number of worldwide kidnappings due to terrorism from 2007 to 2020 uh, – I'm an analyst. I love charts and stuff. Uh, interesting. So the chart here in 2008, uh, it was up to 2007, eight. Uh, they were around 4,000 kidnappings uh, worldwide uh, from terrorism. 2009 sprung up to about almost 11,000, uh, and then back down to the 6,000, 5,000 level. 2012, uh, a low uh, since was at 1,283. And then from there, it almost skyrockets uh, all the way up. In 2016, there were 15,600-ish uh, uh, kidnappings. And then it comes down from there uh, in 2017 down to 8,000. And then now we're around the three to 4,000 level of, of hostages taken per year. So interesting. So why the spike? I don't know. Um I think in 2009 is probably correlated with the financial crisis. 2016, I don't know what would cause that. Uh, any any ideas? No, I, I I don't know. I mean, I, 
kind of the the recession around 2008 2009 would make sense potentially and then i'm just trying to think what probably for some happened. kind of foreign diplomacy likely i, yeah, I, I think I mean, it's it likely might have associated to do with, with like foreign policy and like some of these countries you know being oh but 2016 was the i think was this big issue with iran and we were trying to do this uh uh, this deal around the nuclear, you know, uranium, uranium refinements and stuff like that. So I, that I wonder was... if, uh, I wonder if it like uh, relates to years that they have, um, like the Olympics and stuff like that. I know that, um, like the year mm-hmm. that the Olympics was in Brazil, I think there was like a, a record number of kidnappings and stuff during that time period. And then, oh, wow. um, yeah, that's because so lots of foreigners are traveling to those countries, and you get the cartels and the favelas, and they come up and snatch you. Yeah, I don't know. Interesting, but yeah. So uh, Jared and I, we we actually both just uh, read this book. The it was called "Never Split the Difference" by Chris Voss, and the whole book is he is a a former uh, head of negotiations for the FBI. I can't remember his exact title, but, um, he wrote this book called never split the difference. And he's talking about, uh, negotiating with, um, in lots of different situations, anything from like buying a car to putting your kid to bed, to negotiating with hostage situations and terrorists. And, um, he gives a lot of cool kind of little interesting tidbits like, uh, you know, how to negotiate and, and, uh, you know, mirroring and, and specific things to say and to get other people to say during some, uh, a negotiation. Um, but w- one thing that I thought was really interesting is he goes in and he talks about, I can't remember what decade it was. It might've been the nineties or, um, but the, uh, Apparently, the FBI got involved a lot with some kidnappings that were happening in Haiti. And uh, he said that there was one point where in Haiti, there was like seven to ten kidnappings a day they were going on. That it was just in- incredible how, I don't say much corruption or crime or whatever it might be, but these people were getting kidnapped and then they were being held for ransom. And the FBI got w- would get involved, uh, not particularly because these were U.S. citizens that were being kidnapped, but they were um, maybe uh, politicians or, or, or family members of politicians and things like that, and the U.S. would get involved. And so it was just so interesting that, you know, they would kidnap the, the son of a, a businessman in Haiti, right, just some thugs would. And they would send a, a ransom and say, we want, we want $500,000. And he said he got to a point to where they negotiated so many of these ransoms that he actually ended up kind of finding a pattern of what these people actually wanted. And it, they, yeah, they wanted $500,000, but that's not what they really wanted. After negotiation after negotiation and, and, and basically talking them down, the family is like, well, I don't have $500,000 that I can pay these terror or the, these, uh, these kidnappers. And so they, the family would say, we have $10,000 we could pay. And so he would negotiate with the kidnappers and say, oh, well, the, how, 
How is the, how do you expect the family? How are they supposed to pay that much money? And then, you know, they get it down they'd say, okay, well, $200,000. And then they get it down and say, you know, well, uh, $50,000 and they get it down. And, and it got to a point to where, um, obviously it's a serious situation, but he said it almost became a game to see how low they could get these, uh, (laughs) these kidnappers down on their negotiations on their ransoms. Because he said in the end, really all they wanted was they wanted um, they wanted party money, party money for the weekend. They wanted party money for the weekend, and that was it. And so, you know, he got to the point where they would say, "We want uh, you know three hundred thousand dollars ransom for this person," and he'd be like, "Uh, how about two thousand one hundred sixty-seven dollars and fifty-eight cents?" And then they're like, "Uh, I don't know, you know," and then they they push back. <laughs> And then, and then he'd even say, well, how about we throw in a, you know, a DVD player for each one of you guys. And then they'd be like, uh, we don't want the DVD player, but we'll take, you know, $3,868, you know, or, or something like that. And they'd be like, uh, you know, okay. All right. And so it was just kind of interesting. The, uh, the whole premise of, you know, never split the difference with, uh, I guess, negotiating with, with terrorists is, if you're in a, a negotiation and you know you have a terrorist that has four people and is holding them hostage, or maybe a bank heist that they've got hostages inside, I mean, what does splitting the difference look like? Does splitting the difference say, okay, you know, give us two hostages and then you can keep two hostages? Yeah, I mean, that's not that's not it's unacceptable. There's no, yeah, there's there's no difference to split there. Yeah. Um, and so really good read. Actually, I was even thinking about it. I was like, man, I might, I might listen to that one again, just kind of on, on two X speed, just to pound through it and, and listen to it again. But yeah, that, that is a good one. I, I enjoyed listening. Well, I've listened to about, I think most of it. I think I have about an hour and a half left to listen to it. Uh, but it's, it's, it's been really good so far. Uh, I, I find myself trying to mirror people and uh, use some of his tactics as well <laughs> just to get people to talk, you know? Yeah. Uh, one of the so that those are cool. One of the crazy, uh, most crazy hostage situations that I've heard of, and it's actually a, an infamous thing. And, and this happened right before I was, not right before I was born. It was happened before I was born, uh, about ten years before I was born. So I, I just missed this whole thing, uh, and I, I never really learned about it. I had heard about it. Uh, There's a movie about it, uh, but I never really knew what exactly happened. And then how that ties into something that's happened recently uh, during the Obama administration. Uh, but I want to talk about the Iranian hostage crisis. Ethan, have you ever heard about this? I, I have. I think I I might have seen a little bit of the movie on it one one time, but I don't I don't can't remember any of the details. So let me let me tell you to give you the background. So it's in the fall of 1978, uh, and this is during the Carter Jimmy Carter administration. Uh, so there was a lot of at the time. Uh, the president of uh, Iran was kind of a U.S. puppet, uh, you could say. His name was Mohammad Reza Shah uh, Pahlavi. I'll just refer to him as Shah. Uh, and that president, he was in a situation where the country was trying to revolt against them. And there were lots of protests, uh, lots of protests at the embassy because they were fighting against Americans for you know, being way too involved and meddling in their affairs of their country. Uh, and, you know, the U.S. doesn't really have a, a good track record of uh, 
maintaining peaceful relations and and having puppet governments, especially in Muslim dominated states or countries. Well, it was interesting. I think the the Iran in that time period, I think, was a very kind of progressive country. Um, they had quite a bit of freedom. Um, you know, before some of these revolutions and things happened that that changed the whole trajectory of the country. But yes, yeah, so I didn't dig too much into the, to that exactly. I mainly just looked at the hostage situation because it was very long and intense. Uh, but because of all this up, upheaval and stuff, the U.S. Embassy reduced its staff from about fourteen hundred people to seventy people. Uh, and so when this was happening, that President Shaw, uh, he was having he had cancer and he said oh i need to come to the us to get uh some uh some procedures done and they're like what procedures and he's just like i just got to get some stuff done so it wasn't clear if he was just trying to flee the country or if he actually needed help he did have cancer though uh and so he came to the us and uh and that was a a, a big no no so about a month later uh in november of 1979 about 3,000 protesters stormed the embassy, uh, and they took 63 Americans hostage, and then another three were captured at the Iranian foreign ministry uh, because these people were very uh, upset about with the Americans, and they thought, oh, now the Americans are, are hiding this guy and whatnot. And there was another uh, president who had come out of, uh, uh, like, Exile, I guess you could call it, and he was acting as the. Uh, he said that basically, you got to give us Shaw back, and, and we will release the hostages. So, um, aside from the sixty-three that were sixty-six that were captured, there were six Americans who were able to escape the embassy siege, uh, and sought help with the Canadian embassy. And I'll talk about those six in just a minute. So, the request was on November twelfth, so just a few days after the. Um, the raid uh, of the taking of the hostages, uh, the Iranian foreign, min- foreign minister uh, indicated that these hostages would be released if the United States ceased interfering with Iranian affairs, and if the Shah and if the old president Shah was returned to Iran for trial, uh, and if the assets of in the possession of the Shah were declared stolen property. So uh, that was the demand. So the U.S. response, they tried to do all kinds of stuff. They did a variety of things to squeeze Iran, try to negotiate with the hostages. Uh, they tried. They refused to purchase Iranian oil. I think that caused, uh, I'm pretty sure that caused like an Iranian oil because of that embargo, like gas prices skyrocketed here in the 80s, early, well, in that, during that time, uh, 78 and early 80s. Uh, they froze billions of dollars in Iranian assets in the U.S. They were on like a vigorous international diplomacy campaign uh, to get these hostages released. They had two, uh, they got two U.N. Security Council resolutions against uh, Iran. They filed suit against the Iranian government in an international court of justice, uh, which they won. Uh, the census, the consensus of the international community basically was that these hostages need to be released. They were in favor of the United States. And many diplomats from other countries went to Iran to say, hey, you guys got to let these go, uh, these people go, and uh, this is enough. But really, there were so many revolutionaries, and there wasn't really a clear leader at the time. So there wasn't really a clear person to negotiate with to release these hostages, and they didn't really know who had the power to release them. So 
uh, that was kind of one of the difficult pieces. Uh, they did release a, a few hostages uh, fairly quickly. Uh, there was uh, 13 hostages, all women or African-Americans, on the grounds that they were unlikely to be spies. Uh, and another hostage uh, was released because he was gravely ill. And that was in July. Uh, he was released on July 11th, 1980. Uh, so then there was... Uh, was two years two years after yeah so he was the the um the the guy who was ill was released on july 11th the 13 that were released I, th- I think they were released pretty soon after um november 17th so i think that's actually maybe possibly a few days after they were captured uh so but there were still 52 hostages uh later uh so this whole thing lasted 440 days with, with these main mm-hmm. hostages so lasted a while uh, and at one point, the U.S. tried to do like a military operation to get these guys out. So the hostages were being held at the U.S. Embassy still. Uh, and the operation was an absolute failure. Uh, it was like such an egg on the face of America. It is just unbelievable. Which is funny because you kind of think about the parallels of this. And then when we went in to get uh, Osama bin Laden, uh, you know, I'll 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 read you what what happened and then I'll tell you the parallels in a second. So the operation was fraught with problems from the beginning. Two of the eight helicopters sent for the operation malfunctioned before arriving at the first staging area. Another broke down on site. Unable to complete their mission, the U.S. forces sought to withdraw. During which one of the remaining helicopters collided with the support aircraft. Eight U.S. service members were killed and their bodies left behind were later paraded through, paraded before the Iranian television cameras. So we ended up losing helicopters. They didn't even get there. No, they, they just crashed a helicopter. All these eight soldiers ended up dying. They ended up parading them through the streets and in front of the TV cameras. It made me think of when they went to get uh, Osama bin Laden. Uh, didn't, didn't they have a helicopter, like some kind of top-secret helicopter that they had to, like, scuttle? They had- and burn they had up. to blow up, yeah, because yeah, it had crashed or something. Yeah, it, it was like a silent helicopter, something like that. I don't know, just crazy, total bungled. And then, so that took away a lot of our leverage because they're like, oh, you guys are trying to force us now and trying to do all this stuff, trying to kill us. So they moved the hostages, and it was kind of back to square one at that point. And uh, so I'll, I'll get back to what happens with all those folks later, but I want to talk about more the six escaped uh, the six uh, hostages, the six uh, U.S. citizens that were able to make it to the Canadian embassy uh, and weren't taken captive. So they escaped, and they went to the Canadian ambassador named Ken Taylor, uh, and he kept them in his house and also one of the other uh, Canadian um, dignitaries that was there. And they created fake passports for them uh, while they were there. They were there from November to January. Uh, of the next year and there was you know this was a very you know high stress situation uh the the iranian uh revolutionists knew that there had been some that had escaped and so or at least they thought they did so they were going to try to find them uh the canadian embassy was like trying to get all their people out i think they had the 850 people of their own embassy that they were trying to get out of the country uh and one of the cool things that 
the article said, is when the Americans sought help at the Canadian embassy, uh, they responded, hell yes, of course, count on us. And I just love that. Like That's cool. We're, we're, we're here to help you guys. Um, if it was Justin Trudeau, he'd probably say, no way. You know, who knows? He'd, pro- he'd probably say, I have him over here. I have him over here. Yeah, he, yeah he's communist himself, son of Fidel Castro. Uh, anyway, that's a whole different thing. So the CIA operative named Tony Mendez, who's played by Ben Affleck in the movie, uh, he is an expert in exfiltration, so getting people out of places that they don't, don't want to be in. Uh, and so he cooked up a plan known as the Canadian caper. Uh, a caper is like a, a dance, so the Canadian dance. And uh, interesting, uh, one of the things he talks about, uh, he wrote a book called The Master of Disguise, and I have a quote here from it. He says, a cover should be bland, as uninteresting as possible, so the casual observer or the not-so-casual Im- immigrant official doesn't probe too deeply. Uh, he, he said that in his memoir about this, and he said, his solution, the film gambit, uh, was the opposite of bland. And in an idea so bold, he believed that the Iran that Iran would never consider it be it might be a fake. So what he ended up doing is he had this bold idea to come up with a, a, a movie and say, "Oh, there is a movie script." He found it called Argo, and he said, "This is a science fiction film." And what we're gonna do is we're gonna he he ended up flying to Tehran. Uh, so, well, first of all, before he did that, he set up a, a production company. He met with people in Hollywood. They ran uh, articles and like advertisements for Argo and, and, sever- and several different magazines. And they got all this stuff ready. They got the scripts all, all ready. And he flew over there as the producer and, and uh, like kind of uh, location scout uh, of the movie and so he goes and talks to the minister of culture at in Iran and he says he's Canadian obviously he was undercover uh, and it was interesting because he he goes to the Canadian uh, ambassador's house and he tells everybody hey this is the plan and they're like what this is the exact opposite we need to lay be low-key you know mm-hmm. some of the people had suggested oh well maybe they can ride bikes to the Turkish border. Like it was like, it's 300 mile bike ride. Like, how are they going to do that discreetly? You know? So they had to fly out. The whole idea was to get them to fly out of the country. And so what he did is he gave everybody their, uh, scripts, uh, and he had them memorize their parts or what they were going to do. Uh, there was, you know, someone who was a, a cameraman, someone who was a set designer and, they had to kind of research all this stuff so that they would be ready in case there was any type of interrogation at the airport. They would know their part because if they broke, then the whole everybody was dead. They knew that they were dead. Uh, and so on January 27th, 1980, uh, the film crew navigated its way nervously through the airport and onto the morning flight to Frankfurt. Uh, their fake paperwork and everything their fake paperwork uh, worked uh, out great, despite it being fake, obviously. And they were extremely nervous, obviously. And the plane was actually delayed an hour, so they're just sitting in the waiting room, uh, you know, waiting to be called up. And they're just like, oh, my gosh. And the revolutionaries are walking around, and, uh, you know, they're just so, so nervous. 
Uh, and this is just those six that had that had es- yep. not escaped, but they had evaded the capture. Yep. Plus uh, Mendez, the CIA operative, and his partner, who went by okay. Ho- who went by Jose. Uh, and so it was interesting. One of the quotes from it from uh, this was, and we went up the ramp to the aircraft. Bob uh, Anders nudged me and said, you guys think of everything, Mendez says. He pointed at the nose of the Swiss aircraft and the letter, and there, lettered across the nose was the word Argo. A A spelled A-A-R-G-A-U, which is just like Argo, the name of the film. Mm -hmm. Close enough to the good ship Argo. (laughs) And we... And we always look for some omen in this operation. There's some sign, there's some sign that tells you this is a good work, uh, and that was the omen they were looking for. Uh, I thought that was funny. Uh, Mendes says that when the plane crossed the Iranian airspace, the Americans all busted up into cheers and they started cheering and everything. Uh, and uh, apparently, other people on the airplane started cheering as well. They didn't know why the Americans were. They didn't know why <laughs> these other people were cheering. But they're just like, yeah, you know, we're out of our Tehran because I think a lot of people just were anxious to get out. Uh, and so that was uh, pretty interesting. Later that day, uh, the Canadians shut down the embassy and left Iran. Uh, and what happened there is they, the, the U.S. government was like, oh, thank you, Canada. Thank you so much, Canada, for getting our guys out. You guys are so great. So they didn't. This didn't come out that there was this was a CIA operation until many many years later. In fact, mm. Mendez was given like a, a medal for distinctive service in the CIA. They gave it to him, and then they took it back from him so, <laughs> because it was a secret thing. And then you know until this became public knowledge, and then they eventually uh, act, you know fully gave him the medal. Uh, but they really blamed it on the Canadians, They're like, oh, the, thank you Canada for saving our guys because they didn't want to lose any more leverage or negotiating power. Uh, and make yeah. America seem even more like the bad guys. Uh, of course, the movie made it more Hollywood. You know, there's like a chase scene at the end, and they're in, they're in the uh, airport, and and then one of the guys like, "What is this?" And you guys aren't movie actors. And then like one of the guy like really, uh, you know, he had studied a lot of what the movie was about and what his part was supposed to be. So he kind of convinces them uh, based off what the movie was about. So it's a little bit theatrical, but uh, it was definitely nerve wracking for those walking through the airport uh, to do that. And huh, I'm sure. So the release of the ho- the rest of the hostages in 1980, Iran, Iran officially installed a new government, which made negotiations more fruitful. A lot of stuff started happening, though. Iraq also invaded Iran, uh, which put a lot of pressure on the country, especially when the whole globe was stopped trading with them, essentially. Uh, well, most of the globe. Uh, the prime minister of Iran went to the UN asking for help from world leaders. And they were like, uh, you got to let those hostages go first. Uh, the Shah, that old president, he actually died in July of 1980 of cancer. So that kind of killed that bargaining chip. Uh, and then the Iranians demanded they demanded the release of Iranian assets. And, agree- and an agreement was made January 20th, 1981. Uh, just minutes bef- after Ronald Reagan was inaugurated as president. Apparently this situation was a big deal in the presidential election election between Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. Um, The rest of the prisoners were released after 440 days of being held captive. Uh, The U.S. unfroze 80 billion in frozen assets for Iran. So uh, that is, that's, that's what happened with the Iranian hostage crisis. Now, 
there is a part two uh, on this. And I want to talk to these back to back because they're all related in a way. So you may remember in 2016, the Obama administration was trying to negotiate with Iran to stop them from building nuclear facilities, uh, nuclear bombs, uh, basically uh, refining their uranium and stuff like that. Uh, so with that, there was also five American hostages uh, that Iran had. They had detained and, and, or detained them, held them hostage. You know, potato, potato. Uh, and so, <laughs> so interesting, a little bit of, more of a backstory here. In the 1960s and 70s, when we had good relations with Iran before this revolution, like I talked about, Iran was one of the largest partners of U.S. foreign military sales program. Uh, as an Obama administration was explaining, official was explaining, uh, that as part of the FMS program, that uh, a trust fund was established in which Iranian funds to pay U.S. contractors as work progressed on the various contracts. In February 1979, days before the the culmination of the Iran's revolution, the United States and Iran agreed to a memorandum of understanding that halted these payments and voided many of the remaining purchases. The memorandum of understanding also called for Iran's unexpected, uh, unexpended funds uh, to be placed in an interest-bearing account. So they had a bunch of money in this account, uh, and we we made it. We said, okay, let's pause this, and we're going to put this money in an interest-bearing account. Uh, and then the revolution happened and everything just got paused, right? Uh, so Iran had put 60, 600 million in this fund. Bush, George Bush, George W. Bush uh, had paid 200 million in like the early 90s uh, in an agreement with Iran. So about 400 million remained. So the Obama administration in this deal offered to give them uh, 400 million that was left in the, in the fund plus an additional 1.3 billion that was interest. Uh, hmm. The original memorandum of understanding was supposed to be interest-bearing. This money, this money was supposed to be an interest-bearing account. So from like the 70s to 2016. I mean, that's a lot of years, right? Yeah. Do you think that the United States put that money in an interest-bearing account? Probably not. No, they did not. <laughs> they did not. So... Uh, that. But I'm sure they took out of their uh, taxes account that we paid into taxes to pay their one point something billion dollars. One point three. They absolutely did take it out of the taxpayers' accounts. This is how they did it. So there was uh, the in the, the Department of Finance. They have an account that is used for judgments or litigation against the government. So if I sue the government for something, you know how the we talked about in the Bill of Rights. So there's remittances, or you can have. A, judgments against the government or you can go to the government for grievances or remnants of grievances, I think was called. Uh, and they will pay you out uh, if, if you've been wronged. Uh, and so uh, the government does not allow any cl- single claim to be paid out over 10 digits. Uh, so what they did uh, in order to get around that law because they're using they were using this in a way that it wasn't supposed to be used, they did 13 claims of $99,999,999.99 and one claim of $10,000,000 
$10,390,236.28 to get around that law that said you can't have more than one claim. And also, guess what? This doesn't need congressional approval. So easily, let's just give uh, these guys $1.3 billion uh, in cash. That's how they delivered it, in cash. Uh, so what they did is they wired this money to Swiss banks and they converted it into mostly Swiss francs uh, and euros. And then they delivered pallets, $1.3 billion in pallets of cash to the Iran government, which, which by the way, has been labeled, uh, along with four other countries, as state sponsor of... So the government labels countries uh, that where the state or the country sponsors terrorism. There are four that the, go- the government has, the U.S. government has labeled as these countries are paying for terrorism. North Korea, Cuba, Syria, and Iran. Iran has been labeled like that since 1984, after all this revolution stuff. And Obama gave them one point we gave them dollars. 1.3, well, we gave them 1.7, including the $400 million uh, of, that was, and, and so 1.7 in total. Uh, and, they called it, the Obama administration called it a, uh, they said, well, it's not a ransom payment. Uh, it's uh, it's technically a reciprocating humanitarian gesture. Yeah. That's what they called it. Uh, the State Department officials testified that the payment was briefly halted over concerns about one of the whereabouts of the relatives of one of the released prisoners. The administration maintains that the pause was not linked to the cash transaction, but was the prudent thing to do. So they, they said, oh, wait, you're not going to give us the hostages that we need? Well, we're going to hold the cash for a second. Okay, you found the hostages that we need? Okay, now we're going to give you the cash. So it's not a hostage. It's, it wasn't a ransom payment. It, so like, how can you say it wasn't a ransom payment when literally you're pausing the payment until you, you make sure that the hostages get released? So uh, there was a video that uh, was, I think, posted the online of literally one of these pallets of cash, uh, and the Iranians are like, "Yeah, they're dancing around. Thank you, America. Death to America!" You know, like yeah. these guys are chanting "Death to America" this whole time. Now we can build a bunch of jungle gyms so that our guys, our terrorists, can train in their <laughs> camps. Oh my gosh, what a! So uh, this is. You know, I thought that was interesting because it all kind of comes full circle, and, and you need the context of that Iranian revolution the Iran hostage crisis, and then now uh, this money going back to them. I mean, technically, uh, this was uh, some of their money from when they were a good country. But one of the things you have to consider, and we said we had an agreement that there had to be interest-bearing accounts, but people in the United States have grievances against Iran, and, and they can sue Iran. So there are people in the United States that have millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, in grievances outstanding from Iran, and if the U.S. seizes any of their assets, then it's meant to go pay out these people, right? And so we are giving Iran all of this money while the U.S. citizens have these outstanding multi-millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, possibly more than that, uh, in outstanding like claims against the Iranian government. But now that we're giving them all, their, the, all these assets— now the U.S. just 
you know, it just kind of like, well, I guess we're just the U.S. has to pay. We just kind of we lost the leverage. Yeah. Or or like the U.S. has to pay these claims now or these people just won't get their money. And these are money from like claims like, oh, you took my brother hostage and killed him. So I'm going to sue you for this much in in an international court. It's like, okay, yeah, that that country has to pay that much. And so the U.S., if they seize like a warship from Iran uh, and they can sell or they seize a bunch of money, they would give part of that money to the claims of people who have against that country. So that was another one of the major things that was a big deal with that. So anyway, that's a that was hmm. an interesting story. Yeah, well, I, I thought it was cool kind of how they tied together, right? Yeah. How kind of one really kind of played into the into the other. Can you imagine so, $1.7 billion in cash? In like cash. How much? That's like a warehouse full of cash. Crazy. Yeah. No. I to, to answer that question, no, I cannot imagine one point <laughs> four billion dollars in cash. Yeah. Like, what was it on Breaking Bad when he's like, he's got the the duffel bag. He's like, what's in that duffel bag? This is heavy. And he's like, half a million dollars in cash. You know, and that's just a half a million. You multiply yeah. that by what? <laughs> a <laughs> lot. <laughs> Millions. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine how heavy that would be? You probably fill a a stadium like you probably fill the the floor of a football stadium you know 10 feet high or something i don't know how the dimensions of it exactly but yeah it would be a lot well it depends on if you're using hundred dollar bills or one dollar bills you're using swiss francs so i don't don't know what (laughs) denomination of swiss francs and euros that they have so the 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 one that that i kind of latched on to and dug into is not your average hostage situation this uh this hostage taker right was he was described to be calm polite and very well spoken oh john q so yeah <laughs> so um this is the story of the infamous db cooper ooh nice so in um, on Thanksgiving Eve, November 24th of 1971, a middle-aged man identified himself as Dan Cooper and used cash to purchase a one-way ticket on flight 305, which is a 30-minute trip north from Seattle to Tacoma uh, International Airport. So, he uh, gets on the plane. He bought the ticket in cash with the name Dan Cooper. Gets on the plane, sits down, um, has a drink, uh, 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 bourbon and soda. Um, and then shortly after takeoff, Cooper reached into his bag. He had a black, black briefcase with him, reached into his bag, and handed a note to the flight attendant who was seated in the jump seat nearest to him. And hand her this note, folded over, and uh, handed it to her and just kind of went back to to looking out the window. This flight attendant, her name, her last name of Schaffner, she just kind of assumed that it was some lonely middle-aged businessman in a suit that was giving her his his phone number. So she just kind of put it in her purse, this folded up piece of paper, put it in her purse without even looking at it. So he kind of looks back over to her to her, and he leans over and he whispers to her, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. 
<laughs> oh man. And so uh, he directed her to come and sit in the seat next to him. Schaffner, the flight attendant, uh, she requested to see the bomb, which I don't know if that's like training or something like that, but she said she requested to see the bomb. Um, and he opened up his briefcase just long enough for her to get a, a glimpse of eight red cylinders in two rows of four and assumed it to be dynamite. Mm. Uh, it says a wire was attached to the cylinders and a large cylinder battery was in the briefcase as well. So after closing the briefcase, he stated his demands. Um, his demands were he wanted $200,000 and in American currency, unmarked bills and four parachutes two primary parachutes and two reserve parachutes and a fuel tank standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. So the flight attendant, she got up and she went and she conveyed this message to the pilot and the instructions to the pilot in the cockpit. And when she returned, DB Cooper was wearing dark black sunglasses like and that he wore for the whole rest of the trip. I wear my sunglasses <laughs> at night. Go ahead. So, so the captain, uh, William A. Scott, he contacted the Seattle Tacoma Airport air traffic control and informed them what was going on. Um, the local and federal authorities. There were thirty-five other passengers on this plane, other than DB Cooper. Mm-hmm. And the captain came over the intercom and told the other passengers that uh, they were um, that they were, that their arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of a minor mechanical difficulty. That's what the captain told the 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 rest of the the yeah. passengers over the intercom. Uh-huh. So uh, the the Northwest Orient, which that was the name of the airline, Mm-hmm. So the Northwest Orient's president, his name was Donald Nirup. He authorized the payment of the ransom and ordered all employees to cooperate fully with the hijackers' demands. So the airline is paying the ransom. Yeah. So that, well, that's that. That's I mean, that's who the that's who the ransom was was for, right? Or that's who it was who was asked to, I guess. Um, so. Uh, the aircraft circled around the Puget Sound for approximately two hours while the Seattle police and the FBI uh, had enough time to assemble uh, these parachutes that he wanted and for them to the, the airline to gather um, this ransom money and for them to to mobilize all the emergency personnel and everything they had. So um, Schaffner, the, the flight attendant, described Cooper as calm, polite, and well-spoken, well-spoken, which was not consistent with the stereotypical kind of enraged, hardened criminals that yeah. would just yell, take me to Cuba, you know, and and uh, yeah, just be disrespectful and threatening to kill everybody. And he was just very quiet and silent. Uh, he, he never was cruel. She said he was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time. Um, as Schaffner 
grasp the enormity of what was happening, Cooper continually reassured her. He ordered a second bourbon and soda, paid his drink tab, and attempted to leave a generous tip. Um, attempted to leave a generous tip? Yeah, I don't know what that means. <laughs> <clears throat> um, oh, I would put $10 on this receipt, but the pen doesn't work, so sorry. No tip. <laughs> yeah, the pen doesn't work. So one, one of the uh, the flight attendants asked Cooper if he had why he had such a grudge against the Northwest Orient, which was the airline company. He said, he said, I don't have a grudge against the airline, miss. I just have a grudge. That's, that's what he said. Yeah. Um, so the FBI assembled all the, the ransom money and uh, from several banks around there in the Seattle area. And they gathered 10,000 unmarked $20 bills with the serial numbers being beginning with the letter L and they, they were able to kind of write down all the list of all the serial numbers and everything else. That would take forever. dude. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe there's a machine or something that, yeah. What year was this? What year was this? This was 71. That likely wasn't a machine. that. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. But so this was, this was, uh, yeah, 1971. So this is $200,000, which basically is the equivalent of $1.3 million in today's money. Oh, okay. Um, you need a parachute so, just for the money. In yeah, seriously. Money. <laughs> so um, they they got him all the money, and they got him uh, four parachutes. But they were actually military-issued parachutes that um, that had a an automatic deploy system on the parachute that as soon as you jumped, the, parach- the ripcord would pull. And he actually rejected the military-issued parachutes and instead demanded four civilian parachutes that had manually operated rip cords. And so the Seattle police were like scrambling around. And finally they found a, a skydiving school, local skydiving school that had four para- spare parachutes hmm. that they took from the skydiving school and, and gave to them. So they, uh, they landed in Seattle or they, they landed in Tacoma. Uh, yeah. Tacoma. And, and, uh, he, he instructed the pilot to take the plane to a certain area of the, um, of the, the tarmac, right. And kind of line it up to, to take off. And the president of the airline actually showed up and and he was wearing civilian clothing. He didn't want to wear like, uh, uh, his, his, uh, his pilot's uniform or whatever, or, or whatever the uniform is. Yeah. Cause he didn't want to look like a police officer. Mm-hmm. So he showed up and he brought, two duffel bags full of cash with along with the four uh, um, parachutes parachutes, and, you know, took him in, uh, took him to the plane and Cooper let all 35 passengers go. But he obviously maintained the, the crew on, on the plane. And so they, they went and, um, they started fueling. The fueling process was delayed. They had to bring like three or four fueling trucks and, and Cooper was getting really kind of upset about what was, was happening. Cause it was taking so long. Cause they were intentionally uh, stalling. I'm sure. Yeah. And so, uh, he, he sent them a note saying that this shouldn't be taking so long. And then finally sent him another note to say, 
when he was like, that's enough gas. He basically sent him a note. He said, that said, let's get this show on the road. <laughs> this is the note, the handwritten note that he sent the, yeah. the people, I guess, through the steward or through the flight attendant to the police. Um, so Cooper, they, they, they got on the plane and they went and they took off again. Um, and he basically instructed the, the, the whole crew to get inside the cockpit as they started flying south towards Mexico City is where they were going. And from Washington, so, yeah. From, from Washington. So they they took off and everybody were, was, was supposed to remain in the cockpit with the curtains closed. At approximately 8 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit uh, indicating that the, there was uh, the – the air star apparatus had been activated. I think that's kind of like a, an internal airplane intercom mm-hmm. and the pilot came over the, the intercom of the plane to see if, if Cooper was there or okay, or what, you know, what, if he needed uh, something, if yeah. he needed assistance and Cooper just uh, picked up the phone in the cabin and, and replied back in one word, he said, no, um, that was the last message that anyone heard from Cooper. Uh, after that, the, so how did he like open the door or something like, yeah. How do you open so, the door inside the airplane? Well, you, I mean, you can open the door, right? So the pressure is so hot. Well, it depends on how high they're flying, I guess. Well, a little bit. So they were flying low. They were flying at like 3000 feet. So it wasn't like 30,000 feet. Like they, the, you know, these commercial airliners do whatever that was part of the stipulation. So the jump was shortly after he replied, no, I don't need any help. The crew uh, felt a, a very distinctive change in the air pressure of the plane. And that was basically an indicating that a door had been opened. One of the rear doors had been opened. Yeah. Um, and they, after they felt that they waited a little while and then opened the curtain and he was gone. Um, he had jumped with the money and two parachutes, uh, and then he had left two parachutes in the plane, which he had opened and kind of like cut the cut the cords so they were inoperable. Hmm. I don't know why he would have done that, but um, and he was gone. So he jumped out somewhere over. Um, uh, they don't know exactly. I mean, they they he parachuted out somewhere over Southwestern Washington is, is what they know. Hmm. Um, that that's all the, the, the information that they had. Now the airline actually, um, they set up a, a reward that they were going to pay 15% of any money that was returned, uh, for a maximum of $25,000. Yeah. So, you know, if you returned, uh, you know, hundred thousand yeah. dollars yeah. of that money, then you get you get fifteen grand. Um, and in nineteen seventy two, the go- the go- U.S. government they actually released all of the serial numbers of the bills that were a part of that two hundred thousand dollars. And there were two men that they took advantage of this, and they actually counterfeited several. Uh, they counterbilled a bunch of $20 bills with those serial numbers <laughs> and they swindled a reporter into 
thinking that they that that one of the guys was db cooper and they used those counterfeit bills with those serial numbers as proof to this reporter and so they swindled this reporter out of thirty thousand dollars they said oh if you pay me thirty thousand dollars then I will uh, you know, do an interview with you and I'll do all this sort of kind of stuff. And oh, they, they showed him the money and they showed him the counterfeit money and he believed him, paid him $30,000 and then they disappeared. <laughs> oh, um, man. So kind of interesting. Another really so interesting that's like, thing. That's, that's, we should have talked about on our con episode. Yeah. <laughs> in, in 1980, so this was uh, eight years later, nine years later, actually, uh, a small portion of the ransom money was found along the banks of the Colorado River. So hmm. there was a bunch of money that was found, uh, and I guess somebody found it and turned it in, and it was the serial numbers matched the serial numbers for some of this ransom money. No way. Uh, and so this kind of re-triggered a, a whole renewal of interest. In along the Colorado River, and, that's a ways away. Yeah. So that's a really long ways of, away from southern from southern Washington. Yeah, and so it, it just kind of sparked the mystery of what you know what happened to DB Cooper and everything else, um, which we all know that he ended up in prison with Michael Schofield, right? <laughs> yeah, from Prison Break. Yeah, it's Prison Break reference. Um, so really, they have no idea what happened. The whole uh, the whole thing really kind of remains a, a, a mystery. Um, and uh, actually, you ever see the movie Without a Paddle as well? Yeah, yeah. They, where it's like the boy, the, the, all the young friends, yeah. they all dreamed about finding D.B. Cooper's money. And yeah. and uh, they, whenever they grew up, they went on this adventure to try to find it. And they found out that he had fallen in a hole and broken his leg. And he burned, he all burned the, money. the money to try to stay Still alive, burned. you yeah. know. And, and But, I mean, that was all made up. But yeah. what was interesting to me is that in 2016 – the FBI finally suspended the active investigation in the D.B. Cooper case. Oh, wow. In 2016. I mean, that was like six years ago. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, and that has, this happened in 1971. So, that money's been spent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that money's long gone. So, I don't know. It's kind of like those guys who escaped. You're listen- yeah, if you're, you're li- listening to the podcast, reach out to us. <laughs> yeah, we'd love to have you on. It's yeah, kind of like those kind of like those guys who escaped from Alcatraz, right? Never heard from them again. So maybe they lived, that maybe is, they didn't. That yeah. is true. Maybe they hooked up with DB Cooper. Maybe. Uh, that's an interesting one. That's a classic. Uh, one of the ones I, I I wanted to talk about the one hostage situation, and this one's a, kind of a tragedy, uh, and something I had never heard of. But this is called the Moscow Theater Hostage Crisis. You ever heard of this? Mm-mm. So the Moscow Theater Hostage Crisis also known as the 2002 Nord Oste Siege, because that was the name of the play, uh, was a seizure of a crowded Moscow theater on October 23rd, 2002, uh, by about 40 to 50 armed Chechnyan rebel fighters who claimed an allegiance to the separatist movement of Chechnya. They took 850 hostages and demanded the withdrawal of Russian forces from Chechnya. And an end to the Second Chechnyan War. The siege was officially led by Movasar Barayev uh, after two or three half day siege. After a two and a half day siege, Russian Spetsnaz 
forces pumped an unknown chemical, which was actually a narcotic gas, which is like a fentanyl-based gas, into the building's ventilation system. Uh, and then they raided it. Uh, officially, 39 of the terrorists were killed uh, by the Russian forces. And then along with uh, at least 129 of the people in there, uh, there were the hostages, uh, actually nine, including there, there were nine of those were foreigners, uh, died from the toxic substance that was pumped into that room. So they weren't shot. They were died from the gas that the Russian special forces pumped into the room. Uh, they actually, there were some accounts of like people were in there and they're like, oh my gosh, we're going to die. And they, they could see this gas starting getting pumped in through the AC system. And they're like, oh my gosh. And then the, the Chechenians were, some of them had gas masks. And so they put their gas masks on. Others didn't. And everybody was freaking out. Uh, and the Russians like let it pump in for like maybe two hours or so. Then they just walked in. There was a small gun gunfire from from those Chechens that had gas masks, uh, and but they got eliminated pretty quickly. And then they just walked around and shot everybody that was the, uh, you know, that was Chechenian, uh, the the forty to fifty guys that were uh, taken hostages. And then, but over a hundred a uh, hundred of the hostages, one hundred twenty nine hostages died because. When they slumped over or when they fell back, their necks and their tongues were like positioned weirdly, so they just suffocated. Mm. Uh, and so they like brought out all these bodies. They just brought out all these all these bodies, passed out eight hundred people, passed out bodies, dead bodies, and they just laid them out on the on the sidewalk in front of the the, the theater. Uh, and and many of them were dead. Well, one hundred twenty nine were dead. Uh, there was a doctor that uh, the Moscow Health Committee chairman announced that. All but one of the hostages killed in the raid had died from effects of the unknown gas, rather than from gunshot wounds. Uh, all, and this is—you'll remember this from our, our Chernobyl uh, uh, episodes—that the cause of death listed for all hostages was declared to be, quote, terrorism, unquote, <laughs> claiming that they died from heart attacks or other physical ailments. Yeah. Right. Not from the gas that the, the special forces pumped in there and suffocated half of these people when they passed out, or not half, 129 of them, uh, women and children. Uh, and actually two uh, Spetsnaz forces, actually two soldiers actually died too from gas when they stormed in. Uh, so, you know, classic, you know, like what, what does they say for like Chernobyl? Oh, only 40 people have actually died from the Chernobyl yeah. accident, you know. So uh, I thought that was kind of crazy and also like kind of a failure on the part of, uh, you know, the Russian forces going in and just killing half the people. And, and one of the things in, in the uh, hostage, uh, the Iranian hostage crisis, in, in the movie there was a scene where they're like, oh, the Russians would have been invading Iran by now, you know. <laughs> it's like, well, the Russians would probably would just bomb the whole building and kill everybody. <laughs> Screw them, yeah. Screw all the hostages, just kill everybody. <laughs> So anyway. I, I had uh, I had one other one that was kind of interesting. So this one, I, I read it and it's not meant to be, but I read it. And it was kind of comical. So maybe this will be a good a good ending to okay. that sad that sad story. So uh, this was a Canadian Imperial of Commerce bank robbery. 
So on May 10th of 1973, a man wearing a black balaclava uh, ski mask oh. <laughs> entered into the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce and he was armed with a rifle, a pistol, and a homemade bomb consisting of six sticks of dynamite. So he had rigged this system up where he had a dead man's trigger switch that he held in between his teeth that would de- detonate the bomb if he if he you know spread it opened his opened his mouth. How is he going to talk and give amount. instructions? I don't know. Maybe maybe like in the side of his mouth. Is it or ventriloquist something? or something. Yeah, Give yeah, me I don't know. the money. <laughs> so he demanded uh, his his bag, three duffel bags, be filled with money. And there was a, a police officer there who was actually he was a, an undercover officer. His name was Don Millard, and he um, actually volunteered. He was in the bank, and he volunteered to be the guy's getaway driver for the truck. And he was like, Oh, I'll, I'll be your getaway driver, you know? And it kind of, I don't know, maybe if he kind of was like joining in with him or if he, you know, but he kind of saw an opportunity to get involved and potentially help the situation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the guy was waving around the gun, fill up the, fill up the bags, fill up the bags, all sort of kind of stuff. And so they get all the money and the, 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 the criminal, the hostage taker, he uh, ran out of the bank with the this uh, he didn't know, but mm-hmm. with this undercover police officer, and they both had these big duffel bags full of money. Yeah, and they were running out of the bank, and as soon as they got out of the front door, um, a police sniper shot the robber, which killed him. And it triggered the bomb to go off mm-hmm. and it went right, it went off right next to the, the undercover police officer, but they were holding these big duffel bags full of money. And so it killed the police. Or, I mean, it killed the, the hostage criminal, the hostage taker. Mm-hmm. Right. But because the, the, uh, the police officer was, kind of shielded by this big duffel bag of money. Mm-hmm. He only had like minor injuries. Oh, really? And so, uh, you know, after this explosion happened, the police officer got up and he was kind of okay, you know, and, and, and a hu- over a hundred thousand dollars of cash was raining down in the streets <laughs> oh my of, gosh. of this, of the city. Uh, and I thought it was interesting because at the end of the article, it said, and virtually all of which was returned. So, <laughs> yeah. Almost all of it was returned. Well, right? sure I mean, some of us have blown Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I just thought it was kind of interesting. I mean, it's like, that's just. A dead one, man's one trigger one on your teeth? That, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And then he runs out and then he gets shot and then the whole thing blows up and money's going everywhere. And the, the police officer that was tricking him was involved, but he was okay. And I don't uh, know. It seemed like something yeah. Liam Neeson would get into. Yeah. They should have got their juggernaut suits like those other guys did. When we talked about the uh, rampage. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. So well, huh. this has been. These stories are, yeah. are interesting. You know, th- this is history too. This is stuff that that it shapes it, and it shapes the world around us. If you think about mm-hmm. it, I mean, these DB Cooper that was pre nine eleven, and that happened. Those kind of airplane hostage situations that was a common thing, and that really was 
kind of the impetus for starting this, t- like the TSA and all these yeah, airline that, checks that was and stuff. One of the- the main things that uh, kind of started a lot more airport security and, and with airlines. And like, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's so many, these situations are are not totally uncommon. And like the Iranian, I mean, this is affects America. I mean, these Americans, I mean, there's hostages taken every year. So something to be aware of when you're traveling. I We have a personal, our oldest sister of Vanessa, she knew someone who went to Mexico and the guy was taken hostage uh, when he went to go across the. He was in Cancun. He went across the street to the old tienda, taken hostage by these guys, and he he spoke Spanish. So he ended up convincing them that he didn't have any money and that he was just there with his family. They took him, dropped him off, let him go. But yeah, it's just you gotta be careful. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. So, but, well, thanks for joining, right, guys. Well, this has been fun, just kind of exploring these fun stories and history. Uh, be careful out there, and let's build that creed <laughs> together. All right, let's do it.